This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. The Bioethics Seminar, Editing the Human Genome, Shall We Alter the Future of Humankind? My name is Dale Soden. I am a professor of history here and the director of the Weyerhaeuser Center for Christian Faith and Learning, which is the sponsoring organization for tonight's uh, symposium. I also want to thank uh, the Speakers and Artists uh, organization led by Casey Andrews uh, for support for tonight's event. This idea really is the brainchild of Aaron Putzke, my colleague in the biology department. I first heard Aaron talk about issues related to editing the genome uh, when he gave a faculty lecture last year. And he challenged us all on the faculty to really learn more about what was going on in this particular area of bioethics, saying essentially that all of us will be affected uh, in the future, in the very near future, by some of the decisions that were made. So we got together and we started thinking about, well, what would be a good event for educating our community and, uh, again, what were students in particular about this? And this is what we, what we came up with. So I'm going to let Aaron introduce our three speakers and tell you how we plan to proceed this evening. But again, I would just say we are fortunate to have uh, Dr. Putzke with us. He's been a great addition to the Whitworth faculty. And again, it's ideas like this that uh, make, uh, again, hopefully our community a special place. So let me introduce Aaron Putzke. Thank you. Uh, I'm really excited tonight. I want to thank everybody for coming. It's a fantastic turnout. Uh, thank you for the students. Thank you to faculty. Thank you to community members that are here. I really appreciate you taking time out of your evening to come and, and hear about this really interesting and important topic. And I want to open it with just sort of a, a, a personal story about why this is such an important topic for us. It's, it's something I'm really passionate about, and, and I love learning about it and talking about it, but it's a very real thing uh, for all of us very soon, if you're not already aware of some things. And one of the reasons why it's really important to me is, uh, you know, this, I have a, we have a family friend, and this summer we were all camping together up in the mountains, and we were sitting around the, the campfire one night, and the, the kids had finally gone to bed. And uh, we were talking, and, and some good friends of ours, they have a son who has uh, Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. And we were talking about... Uh, potential cures and things like that. And it kind of came to this, and we were talking about this new genome editing technology that was really being touted in the media, and, and it's the, the new savior of all things disease. And we were talking about how interesting and exciting it could be, and, and also about some of the public discussions and the political discourse that was happening around this, and how do we regulate this kind of thing. And, <clears throat> excuse me. She looked at me and she said, Aaron, if we have this technology, why aren't we using it now? And it was a really, I could do the desperation in her eyes because her son is dying. Uh, it was a really big deal to me. And so that kind of a thing is, is really important. And I wanted to engage everybody here and I want us to go out into the community and engage and I want us to engage our politicians and I want us to engage experts and learn more about this and talk about it because it's not just about science. It's about regulating and making important ethical decisions surrounding the science. And we have a unique opportunity 
to do this together. And it's not very often that in our lifetimes we can be included in a conversation like this. So I really want to impress on you how important it is for you to engage in this and have a voice because you can and you can influence the people that we elect who are going to make these decisions. Because once they do, the barn doors open, it's pretty hard to pull the animals back in. And so this is amazing technology, but it's something that we have to think about carefully how we want to use it and how realistic it is in some way. So that's what we want to engage tonight. So I want to introduce our, our panel of experts tonight that I'm really excited about. And I, again, I want to thank Dale for his help um, in bringing these people in. And uh, they're a wide range of, of expertise. And so I, I'm going to introduce them one-on-one -on -one and, and ask them to come and, and sit up here as I do so. So from Seattle, we have Andrew Scherenberg, uh, who's uh, a medical practitioner but a researcher. And what he does, he's at Children's Hospital in Seattle, and he's going to uh, talk to us a little about what he does, give us some of the basics on what is this technology, how does it even work, and how he's put it into translatable, practical use. And so please welcome Andrew. We also have with us uh, Megan O'Keefe, who is here from uh, UC Davis. Uh, she did her studies, her graduate studies at Carnegie Mellon, and she is uh, kind of traditionally an East Coaster, I guess, right? Transplanted. Megan has studied a lot uh, with religion and law, politics, society, where those collide and how we, how we think about things. And she's looked at a lot also, um, she's part of a bioethics center there, uh, where they're trying to get more into the nitty-gritty of how do we talk about these things? Not just how do we regulate them, but how do we talk about them? And how do we, how do we get people to talk about them? And what's the kind of language that we use surrounding that? So we're really excited to have her here giving us her perspective tonight. Please welcome Megan O'Keefe. And then finally tonight, we have uh, Nigel Cameron with us, uh, who is here, and he is, um, he is the leader of uh, a think tank that is called the Center uh, for Policy for Emerging Technology. And this is a group uh, and that he drives that literally travels the globe talking to people about important emerging technologies, how we need to deal with them from a policy perspective, how we, need to, how we can deal with them from uh, market perspectives and ethical considerations, things like that. So he has a lot of experience not only talking to groups of people, but he's testified um, before uh, Senate hearings in the U.S. He's testified in European commissions. Uh, he's part of UNESCO. So he's done a lot of work globally um, for a number of years now, and so we're really happy to have him here with us. So please welcome... Nigel. So what we're going to do tonight is uh, each of these three are going to give a, a short presentation uh, just coming from kind of their perspective, their area of expertise. And then what we're going to do is we're going to open it up to a question and answer period where we're really interested in uh, hearing from you, hearing your questions, um, asking them as experts how we can better think about and address these issues. So um, I want you, as they're 
uh, talking, if you think of a specific question for them, uh, what we'll do instead of having questions for each of them after their little presentations, if you would please save those until the end, and then we can address those. So if you would write them down or tapity-tap on your laptop, uh, keep them in your mind, that would be fantastic. We'll have uh, plenty of time for that afterward. So what we'll go ahead and do is since uh, Andrew's presentation is up here, we'll go ahead and start with him, if that's okay. Thank uh, Dale for the invitation and, and the opportunity to uh, talk with all of you. And, and actually, I'm just absolutely uh, mind-boggled by the, by the turnout. This is amazing. Standing room only. I can't wait to tell my uh, wife and kids. <laughs> so as, um, as uh, Dale and, and Aaron alluded to, uh, I'm a physician at uh, Seattle Children's Hospital. Uh, I uh, have a small clinical practice, but I spend most of my time in the research lab working on developing new types of therapies for the patients I take care of, which are children with uh, immunodeficiencies. And um, I also do a fair amount of outside professional work, so you can develop things in the laboratory, but if you really want to translate them and use them in people, you have to have industrial-level resources. That's a lot of money in order to develop the processes to the level of meticulous perfection that, that you're actually going to take into a patient. So I do a fair amount of outside professional work as well with uh, a biotechnology company called Bluebird Bio and another local one in, in Seattle called Alpine Immune Sciences. And I'm actually required by the University of Washington to provide that disclosure for, for any talk that I give. Um, I wasn't 100% sure what the background of everybody uh, who would be attending the, the seminar was, so I wanted to start out with a, um, uh, just a, a, a kind of a, a very basic discussion of what genome editing is. So what this is, is we have a new class of tools, which are really are very much like scissors that we can use to modify uh, our, the genomes of our cells. And uh, a cell, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar, is, is some, it look, looks something like this. And uh, it's an immensely com complex object. Your body is made up of billions and trillions of these things. So there's a, a bunch of these, you know, you have different types, muscle cells, neural cells, blood cells. All of them have uh, these various uh, organs. If you zoomed all the way into the center of the cell, into an um, object called the nucleus, you would uh, find that that was chock full of a set of, of long ribbons of chemicals called DNA. And DNA, obviously, is, is where your genes reside. It's effectively the program for every cell in your body. It's the, uh, the blueprint of your development while you're uh, um, growing from a single cell into, into a child. And it carries the instructions that allow you to, to um, carry out your biochemistry and live and think and do all the things that we do. And um, the, uh, let's see if I have a, do I actually have a cursor? I do have a cursor up here. So the, these strings of DNA are actually interpreted by uh, proteins that are made from the DNA and send messages out to, to other parts of the cell. So um, when we think about editing a genome, we have to ha deliver to the nucleus of a cell something that can modify that DNA, change the program effectively at the very most basic level of a cell. And um, so that's what genome editing is all about. We have these tools that, that are molecular scissors. We deliver them. They're able to find a very precise location in the genome, make a break in the gene at that site. And there's actually natural healing processes called DNA repair that then try to stitch that site back together because these kinds of breaks in your DNA are happening all of the time. They have to be repaired all the time. With genome editing, we deliver a tool that makes that break over and over and over, and we hope that we then have an outcome, a repair event that modifies the, um, the function of that gene. And, and so one of the things we work on is making these molecular scissors, but we also work on ways to, to have the outcome of the breaks that are made by those scissors create specific kinds of changes in the program so that we have a predictable outcome uh, when, we, when we've edited that cell. Um, and all classes, so the one that you may have heard of, CRISPR, is a very 
uh, has had a lot of visibility in the last uh, two years in particular, but there are about four total classes of, of different types of molecular scissors. They all act in basically the same way, and, and different groups are, are using different classes of these for, for different applications. So what are the applications? We're going we're to talk a little bit about, I think, germline editing tonight. That's certainly one of the most visible and controversial ones. For me, I don't see it as a realistic application for humans, and you'll probably learn a little bit more why uh, that is. And I think one of the aspects, of course, are the, are the moral ramifications of, of doing that. Um, the therapeutic applications are the ones that, that are pretty much the focus of myself and every biotechnology um, uh, company that's working in this area. There are some agricultural um, uh, applications I'm not going to talk a lot about as well, but, but those are... Um, uh, also, I think things that we should think about in terms of uh, whether we would like to have a food supply that has rational modifications into it versus ones that we've created in different ways, but, but we select in a rational way. And I'm also going to talk about what I would call an environmental application, which is something called gene drive, where I also think there are very significant ethical questions. So um, let me talk first about the um, oopsie days. Uh, therapeutic applications. Um, so one of the most important applications for genome editing is in editing immune cells, and, and there's two kinds of ways that we're thinking about doing that. I'm going to talk about the cancer side of this. So in, in patients who get cancer, basically, um, one of the things that happens is your immune system fails to recognize the cancer and eradicate it. Most of the time, we're all living without cancer because that's happening all of the time. Our immune systems are working really well. In patients who ha where, the, where the immune system has not effectively recognized the cancer, we now have the ability to engineer immune cells that will eradicate the cancer. And an example that uh, I was involved in is learning how to modify T cells to, to recognize a form of cancer called leukemia. And the way we do this is, is we obtain T cells from a patient. These are cancer-fighting immune cells. Um, uh, we actually have a, a way of modifying them using a virus to add genes to the cells. So we can not only edit the genes of a cell, but we have ways of adding new genes to cells too. This is kind of classic gene therapy, and this is something that, that we do on a regular basis now therapeutically. Um, what we'd use uh, gene editing for is to, is to disrupt genes in cells. So um, immune cells have ways of uh, targeting cancers, and they also have ways of having breaks put on them to prevent them from uh, getting out of control and causing uh, problems with normal tissues in your body. And to make a really good immune cell, there are times we might want to knock one of those genes out and, and leave a cell without breaks so it's even more aggressive in, in attacking a, a tumor than usual. Um, and there, there are also a few other things that we, we might want to do to T-cells. So one of the projects that I've been involved in is that there are certain patients who have blood tumors where we can't actually take their own T-cells out to modify them to put them back in. So I was part of a project where we obtained T-cells from a random donor and modified them to have an off-the-shelf product. So we were modifying them in the same way, and we had to use gene editing tools to make this product in order to make these cells that we're taking from a random donor be able to be put into any patient um, and be available off the shelf. And so that um, product actually has been used. So gene editing therapeutics are now being used clinically, and um, those were used to treat a little girl named Lila. So she was the first little girl treated with this gene-edited off-the-shelf CAR T-cell product. This was in August of 2015 and it induced a, a remission of, of a leukemia. So she was one year old, um, had an aggressive leukemia, received a bone marrow transplant. Her leukemia recurred, um, and so uh, she failed all other treatments, and her parents, they asked her parents, would you like to try an experimental treatment? And they said, you know, at this point, why not? And um, they came in with a tuberculin syringe. So tuberculin syringe is the smallest little tiny syringe you can imagine, and they injected the cells into her and her parents so that you can go look on the, this happened in London at a place called Greater Ormond Hospital, and her parents are like, you know, 
what is this? Like a joke, right? We've been dripping bags of chemotherapy into my child. You, you ask us about an experimental treatment. We're expecting machines and, you know, Star Wars. And, and you come in and you dribble this into my child. Well, in fact, it, it, over about a two-week period of time, she stabilized. Over another 10-week period of time, the leukemia was completely eradicated. She had a, a second bone marrow transplant and, and is now alive and, and doing well today. So gene-edited therapeutics are going to have a place in our medical future, and, and they're going to make a, a phenomenal difference. Since this, Lila was treated, one other child has had a very similar uh, complete response and eradication of her leukemia, and, and uh, they're now beginning a, a safety trial of this in a, in a lar larger group of patients. Um, the other thing I'm going to, oh, let's see, the um, other application I want to just highlight, I think therapeutic applications like that don't pose too many moral questions other than perhaps, can we afford these? Um, and maybe that will be a, one of the topics for discussion today. Um, one where there's, I think, thornial uh, ethical questions to get at are something called gene drive. So gene drive would be an approach for modifying insects that carry diseases. Uh, and we have a couple of different ways of doing it. But w what we do, uh, and, and I am involved in a project that, that is, is making um, insect vectors um, or gene drives like this to try to um, reduce the numbers of, of mosquitoes that are involved in transmitting malaria. But if you can imagine, so, so one of the approaches we make is we, we put one of these gene editing nucleases. In, in this case, we actually have to put a gene for the nucleus into the genome of a male mosquito. And that gene attacks the X chromosome, which is what encodes the, the, some of the sex-determining genes in mosquitoes. So all of them, any mosquito, um, and this gene right here, this nucleus is only active in the male sperm cells. So all the sperm that have, would carry an, an X chromosome are, are eradicated. So every mosquito is only going to make male sperm. Eventually, you would have an entire population of males, which obviously would be a very dull place with many people who are late and not able to keep good track of their time and many other problems, as, <laughs> as, uh, as well as obviously you would eventually eradicate the population. So the idea is to use that as an approach to suppress the population. You can do a similar thing. Um, I'm actually, since I'm running tight on time, or am I okay? Okay, so there's, there's a, a related kind of, of um, a genetic allele we can make, which is called a homing allele. And in this case, we put a gene for that molecular scissor on, in this case, not an X chromosome, but a regular chromosome. And it has, it, it makes the double strand break in, in its, the, when you put a gene in a particular location in a genome, because all, all animals have two copies of that gene, we make that nuclease cut the, the same place where it resides on, on a, um, on its own home chromosome, and so it's able to copy itself into its home on this other chromosome. Which, and, and when you have this happen in, a, in the germline of an animal, every animal that would normally just in, uh, inherit one allele um, will pass on only that allele. So it starts with one allele, but now every one of its progeny has both alleles. So this is called super Mendelian inheritance, and this is a way you can drive that gene through a population. Um, and so that every, eventually, every animal in that population would carry that gene that you've, you've placed that way. And if you choose, I can't remember what I added here. Um, so we, let me go back, that's actual real data. So if you choose, for example, the, uh, to have this gene be one that's involved in female fertility, and you drive these um, genes in the male germline, that means that every male will now have only sperm that have, uh, are defective in that they carry a gene that if a female gets two of them, she will no longer be fertile. So you've now created a way to make infertile fe females drive throughout the population and potentially eradicate that species of mosquito. And so 
This is called um, a female fertility gene drive. Um, this is an example showing that we can actually make this technology work in a cage. And I don't want to talk a lot about it, but what happens is the idea is you would introduce a very few of these mosquitoes. This is a, 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 a cage experiment where we introduced a very few number of mosquitoes into a cage of mosquitoes and then monitored the frequency of that, that, that um, gene over time. And in only 10 or 12 generations, it had already reached um, almost 50% of the progeny mosquitoes that were then existing in that cage. So as you can imagine, that's very fast. A mosquito has about a three-week generation time, which means in about two or three years, if we could drive that allele through the entire population, we'd be able to effectively eradicate that, that mosquito population. For places like Africa, and here's an example of, of what a female fertility homing endonuclease gene would look like. So we have to put the gene for the, the, the um, gene editing tool in the middle of the fertility gene so that it can copy itself over. So if you can imagine, in places like Africa, where you have very little public health infrastructure in the middle of a country, a mosquito uh, driving gene like this is one of the very few places that you can use to try to suppress a mosquito population that's involved in malaria transmission throughout an entire continent like that, if it was worked as billed. And obviously the ethical issues, I think, are, are ones that probably everybody immediately is thinking about. What are unintended consequences of eradicating a mosquito population? What if that driving allele hop, that, that encodes a fr female fertility uh, gene hopped from that mosquito to another mosquito? What if it hopped to a honey, uh, for example? So there's a lot of issues that, that would potentially uh, come to light with, with the application of this technology. Um, I think that's actually it. Let me go back. Where am I? Ah, that's it. So um, that's all I have to talk about today. And, and I hope that that gives you a sense for what the technology of Gene Drive is and some of the ways that it's being contemplated being used. Thank you. So I think we'll go, we'll just come back down the line, Megan. Is that working? Oh, excellent. All right, well, I just want to thank um, Dale and Aaron for inviting me here tonight. And I'm really very, very happy to be part of a public discussion about CRISPR. I think it's necessary, and I think it's good. And that said, I want to start by saying that we have a problem. We don't have a good way of talking through the ethics of biotechnology, particularly in public discussions. And this is especially true of CRISPR, which cuts across all the visions of the life sciences. So currently, we have three major approaches to ethics um, in public discussions. And that is, number one, ethics, which concentrates on the good. And then we have science, which is concerned with the true. And then we have religion, which is about the right. Now, neither the good, nor the true, nor the right is particularly well-suited for public engagement and debate. So let me elaborate. About two weeks ago, I was at the American Society for Bioethics and Humanities Conference, and I was on a panel about using CRISPR for germline modification. And that's meaning permanently altering the genes of an organism so that it and all its offspring would forever carry that mutation, as Andrew just explained here. And now, during the question and answer period, a senior bioethicist in the back of the room raised her hand and said, I don't understand why we're talking about this. We know there's a bright line here. Germline modification is off the table. Now, I thought, maybe for ethicists it is, but that's not what I hear anywhere else. Germline modification is not off the table. 
But this illustrates a disconnect between public discussion and academic bioethics. The difficulty in eth academic ethics is that it often restricts itself to the ideal, which is necessary and good, but is sometimes less than helpful in situations where we have to deal with selecting different sets of values and concerns, and ones that don't adhere to the values and methods of academic bioethics. Also, it is often not the case that simply arguing for the good is sufficient to make it happen. Would that it were simply enough to determine the good, we would all be much better off. Arguments must be brought before audiences, and audiences must be persuaded. I think academic bioethicists would agree with me on this. I'm not arguing against ethics, per se, but I am arguing that it is insufficient. So, now let's turn to science, which I have, uh, which I have claimed is concerned with the true. So let me explain. There is um, this idea, this illusion that is widespread in scientific circles that facts speak for themselves and that they make such an imprint on any human mind that the hearer is forced to give his or her adherence regardless of what your inclination may be. So to put it another way, this is the idea that if only the public could sufficiently understand science, then they would support the position that scientists take. This is the idea that facts speak for themselves. Now, the other thing that I hear about that I hear at scientific conferences is that if it's not a problem of understanding, then it's just religious fanatics who object. It's this assumption that once you understand, unless you adhere to some utterly irrational, aka religious fanaticism, then there's no reasonable way to object. And what this does is put the public in the position of being either agreeable or ignorant, or crazy, which I don't think is fair, and it certainly isn't accurate. And the problem with this model is it's about discrediting, not persuading. And I want to exempt Andrew from this. I think that this is, this is exactly the kind of place and the kind of discussion we, can, we, we should be having. But if you have a model that's about discrediting, and not persuading, and not thinking about audiences, that's not a good way to engage the public about issues of biotechnology. So, Let's talk about religion. Religious people are concerned with the right. And the, the difficulty here isn't that religious people aren't interested in persuasion. On the contrary, it's clear that considerable resources are brought to bear in efforts of religious persuasion, particularly the, in, in those faith, faiths that have a, a strong tradition of proselytizing. And there's even, I think especially in Christianity, a deep understanding of people's capacity for doing wrong. And I think that kind of realism is necessary for making good public policy. But here's the problem. Religious positions on ethical issues in America are formed within religious communities. In other words, these positions are formed by people that already agree with one another. It doesn't take place in a context of a diverse public. Let me elaborate. Often I hear in public discussion when a person answers a question with, well, it's what I believe. It's my religious belief. People will back off, right? And on some level, we should. We ought to respect the religious beliefs of others. It's polite, and more importantly, it's the basis of our democracy. But there's a problem with this. There's a sense in which core ethical values, if they are based in religious beliefs, are somehow not a part of public discussion. And I want to clarify here. I'm not, ad I'm not advocating for a theocracy. 
I absolutely don't believe that the religious beliefs of the majority should govern public policy. It's just that I think that religious argument ought to be tested in diverse contexts. Otherwise, it becomes very difficult to talk about some of the most important issues facing us, like this issue we're talking about here tonight. And it can preclude the possibility of working out ethical approaches on complex public issues. So this leaves us in something of a bind, right? Without the good, the true, and the right, what do we do? Well, I'm going to go back to Aristotle on this, and I mean Aristotle on rhetoric and not on ethics, and say that arguments must take into account the audience. This means that ethicists must consider how to create arguments that don't use a kind of philosophical shorthand. That philosophers have to build accessible arguments with an audience in mind. To be clear, this ought to be an exercise in imagination, not condescension. And we ought to argue in good faith. Arguing in good faith means that it is incumbent on experts, like me, like the other people here tonight, that we ought not to discredit audience, but to imagine them as carefully as possible and to argue in good faith before them. Likewise, religious people must think of broader, more inclusive audiences. We must all listen, we must all consider, and be open to persuasion and compromise. But in order for this to happen, at the very least, audiences and publics must know what's under discussion and must know what the stakes are. And I, I have to say, I so appreciate the explanation at the beginning. I think that this is really important that we know the mechanics of this in order to think through it carefully. But it also means that we have to use really clear language. Uh, not everybody gets an explanation like the one we heard. And that metaphors are usually used to explain scientific uh, concepts. And the goal here is to teach, right? It's to explain. And the metaphor for CRISPR is gene editing. I want you to think about that, editing. Like, what does editing mean? And it's, it's sort of supposed to convey the idea that scientists are now able to cut, paste, or delete genes. And this does convey one really important thing, that CRISPR is faster and more accurate than anything that has preceded it. On the downside, the editing metaphor reduces complexity and gives an exaggerated sense of control that we can, that we can actually control what's going to come out at the end, right? And the problem is, if you're simply trying to explain the technique, that's one thing. But if you're presenting something for public consideration, it, it's quite another. It's gene editing for scientists is contextualized in a lab setting. And in a lab, there's a great deal of emphasis on outcomes um, and results. And, and there's also, it's also a given that the material you're dealing with is essentially biological. It's a material it's a, bi a biological material, and it is being edited. And so let me reiterate here. Since scientists test hypotheses through experimentation, the outcomes are always the culmination of work, and therefore an ever-present concern. You can never not be thinking about what's going to happen in the lab, what your outcomes are going to be. And so you can't think about gene editing without thinking about the results if you are a scientist. But once CRISPR is introduced as editing to the public, all that scientific lab context is taken away. You don't have that. And it's replaced with a far more common experience, and that's editing words on a page. And the problem with editing is that it doesn't convey a sense of risk or, indeed, like, make us cautious. It implies a text, and you think of a text. It has an overall vision. It has a purpose. It's within a bounded set of rules. 
And editors refine, they correct, and they suggest. All right? And a text can be seen clearly. And when a semicolon is changed to a colon, the grammatical effect function and the effect of meaning are known, at least for, for some of us. I wouldn't say everybody knows how to use a, a colon or a semicolon. Um, it's not been my experience anyway. Um, but, but the thing is, none of this is true about editing a genome. We can't determine the effects that cutting and pasting part of the genome will have. So I'm going to reiterate something that my colleagues from the University of California Bioethics Collaboratory and I have argued elsewhere, that we need metaphors for CRISPR that convey the ethical complexity of the technology, that give an accurate description of what the technology is, how it works, how it can be used, and also that communicate what is unknown and known about the potential consequences. So let me just say, I hope we can make some efforts toward that goal today and maybe come up with some new metaphors. And I think ecology especially is a rich source. Um, for example, Rodney Mauricio has suggested that we think of genome editing and genomes as something as complex as the web of species in an ecosystem. So think about that for a minute. So what does it mean when you change one of those species in an ecosystem? Now that's one way to think about CRISPR and a gene within a genome within an organism and the, the many, many different relationships that, that we don't fully understand that it may affect. So finally, I just want to say that I'm really happy to be here tonight and to be part of this discussion um, and to be able to introduce some caution about language and to be part of what I see as an invita invitation to real engagement. I think that discussions like this tonight are incredibly important in thinking through approaches to this new, fast, powerful, complicated technology, and that we're all here tonight, you know, scientists, ethicists, religious people, as part of a good faith effort, right? As part of good, a good faith effort to understand what it is that we're facing here, and that we're engaging with one another as a kind of a public, and that we are all of us here on some level engaged public citizens, and that we're speaking in good faith, and more importantly, we're listening in good faith. So thank you. Well, thank you very much. It is uh, very good indeed to be here. Thank uh, you to the hosts. It's a treat to be here at Whitworth, where I have not been before, and uh, to be here in Washington State, where actually um, part of my family lives. I come from the other Washington. Some of you will have heard of the other Washington, perhaps best defined as 50 square miles surrounded by reality. <laughs> and the other Washington, of course, is currently somewhat preoccupied with what I think one of my Washington Politico friends best put in these terms. This, he said, is an election to die for. <laughs> the policy context is all when you get to Washington. And one thing I think we have to recognize in every one of these discussions about science, about values, about religion, and so on, we put these pieces together, is that policy is what shapes our community. At different levels, it can be constitution, it can be statutes, it can be all sorts of regulations, it can just be funding policies, funding decisions. But policy is what we end up with when we as a community decide we would like things to be like this and not like that. And the democratic process, when it works well, is a way of enabling that to be delivered. So that is an, as an observation from the other Washington 
on the kind of conversation we're having here today. Now, I have four observations to make to you before we get into some, into some discussion. Um, the first is about the principle of, of germline genetic interventions. And, and you'll appreciate what we're talking about. The germline, we're talking about inheritable interventions. That is what is so interesting, exciting, worrying here. And this CRISPR technology, we've been worried about this forever. Back in 1975, there was a famous conference at a, a place called a cinema, which is the, the benchmark for many of these conversations, where mainly the top scientists got together and were looking at this kind of technology in its instantiation of 40 years ago. And they said, there's a lot of stuff here we just don't want to do. We want to slow down. We want to have a moratorium. We as scientists are worried about these things. Fast forward 40 years, and now we have CRISPR, which thanks to some very smart scientists, has shocked the science establishment into a recognition that now we actually have technology which can very rapidly enable us to mess around with, with genes, including human genes. That's, that's a quick lay perspective on the significance of this discussion. Now, some of you will know the name of a man called C.S. Lewis. You know him probably from the Narnia stories. You may know him as a very very effective lay theologian of the 20th century. Lewis wrote a little book in 1943, in the middle of the war, with the striking title, The Abolition of Man. Actually, a rather odd book, because it's a book with three sections to it. That's the overall title, and part of it has that as the section title. It's only about seven pages long, so you can find it easily. And Lewis's little essay, The Abolition of Man, has been seen by many as a profound contribution to our understanding of the context of the possibility of making inheritable genetic changes. Because what Lewis says briefly is, if we start making changes, whatever our motives may be in what is inherited within the human stock, we are taking power over every succeeding generation. And that every generation to come, as he puts it, is a patient of our power. And in the process, he says, we actually are turning our race, the human race, into something other than a collection of persons. We're turning it into a thing which we are now shaping by our own decisions. Now, I'll leave you to read Lewis, which you certainly should. I think his brief essay is one of the most consequent documents of the 20th century. That was Lewis's view. It doesn't seem to me it rules anything out in particular, but I think it sets a very sober frame of reference around this discussion, as does the Asilomar conference from 40 years ago in our scientific community. Now, I, one reason I don't know why I ended up being invited to come along today, but I'm very pleased to be invited to come along today, was around, I think, maybe nine years ago, maybe 10 years ago, I was invited to take part in a debate in Washington, um, a part of a conference called, I think it was called BioSummit East, something like that. Very distinguished group of people there. These were kind of top, top persons in the biotech industry, mainly industry people and scientists. And I was asked to debate a man called Gregory Stock, who used to run the bioethics center, I think at UCLA, and, and is now a, a biotech entrepreneur, written a number of very interesting books. And he's very, very liberal, rather libertarian on, on these sort of questions. And Greg and I, in fact, are now really quite good friends. Uh, we, hadn't, we hadn't met before this debate. And he, the debate which was put, organized by this conference was on whether we should have a global ban 
on germline inheritable gene interventions, human ones. And I was asked to say yes, and Greg was arguing no, and we had a fun time debating this, and I, I, think, I think I won the debate, but there again. He's a, very, he's a very smart guy, but I think I'm a better debater. And it, it's always, it isn't whether you've got the better arguments, it's whether you're the better debater, and whether you have the better accent, that also helps. So, <laughs> so it was the first time I'd been asked to, in fact, to go on the record and make a case against inheritable germline interventions in, in, in the human species. And so I, I thought the thing out then, and looking back on it, looking ahead, I wouldn't come before you now and say, I want a global ban on this technology, but I would say it is the kind of thing about which we need to be having that kind of conversation. Now, next observation, David Baltimore, uh, who was the president, was president of Caltech, and one of our most distinguished scientists, Nobel laureate and so on, recently chaired a very significant conference at the National Academies of Sciences, which was seen as a kind of equivalent today of the Asilomar Conference in 1975. And they opened this conference to the UK, another leader in the technology field here, and to the Chinese Academy of Sciences. Very interesting. And they all got together in Washington a few months ago, and they pretty much said, we are where they were Asilomar. We've got to do this thing real slow. There should be a moratorium on certain kind of interventions, and we are the scientists saying this. We aren't coming at this as ethicists or as, as politicians, religious people. We scientists are concerned that this is a fundamental step in our capacity to shape, to engage, to change, perhaps to change, uh, the nature of, of, of the human species. Even if this is a long way off, even if it's going to be very complicated, even if we can do things to mosquitoes now that you know, are going to be much, much more complex to do to humans. In principle, this thing is so significant that the National Academy of Sciences convened this global conversation and said some remarkably cautious things about the technology. So I, I, I share that. Next observation, just a, a quick uh, tour d'horizon of efforts that have been made globally to address things like this, because this isn't the first time there's come up a conversation about globally dealing with biotechnology. Of course. It's no good, in a sense, banning something in one country, banning it in one state. It'll pop up somewhere else. These are global conversations for the human race. And just to run down four significant things which have happened over the last um, 30 years, which perhaps you are not entirely all aware of, but I think actually very significant for this discussion. One is that the Council of Europe, which is bigger than the EU, it's, it's a, um, the, the grouping of almost all the European states, including now Russia, um, has a convention, a convention which is a treaty which has legal force in those states which have signed the convention, uh, 1997, the uh, European Convention on uh, Human Rights and Biomedicine. Covers a whole lot of issues like this issue. Secondly, the same year, UNESCO, you know, UNESCO is the United Nations global body for education, social, cultural, scientific questions. They produced a short Declaration, which is not a legally enforceable document, declaration has like, moral force among the signatory nations um, on genetics and the human genome. Cautionary approach. UNESCO then expanded this into the universal instrument. They love these glorious terms in UNESCO. The universal instrument on bioethics and human rights, which was passed unanimously by the UNESCO General Conference 
in 2005, which is the global benchmark for our discussions of medicine, biotechnology, human rights questions. And then finally, and much more specifically, and something even less well known, the same year, the UN General Assembly, which is the political arm of the United Nations, passed the Universal Declaration on Human Cloning. It's a very interesting document, and I was part of that process, and I wrote a 100-page law review article all about it, so I direct you there for further, <clears throat> further enlightenment. Point is, we have here a series of illustrations of global efforts to frame these questions and get some sort of global agreement about how to handle them. And I think they are all four significant in somewhat different ways as evidences of how it is possible for the whole species to come together and discuss something as significant as this kind of question. Final comment, um, a brief theological reflection. Plainly what we are talking about here, for those of us who are Christians and also those of the other Abrahamic faiths who have much in common in our approach to human nature, we're talking about human beings made in the image of God, given this unique specialness by bearing that image, an image within the Christian tradition, of course, under, underscored most dramatically by the incarnation in which God himself takes human form, takes human flesh. That we aren't just in his image, he is, if you like, taking the image for himself as a member of our species, and he is now raised and in glory, and we have believed in the continuing humanity of Christ. There's a whole theological tradition here which interestingly in the, Western, in, in the Western world has led to, has been the major factor leading to the notion of human rights. And it is secularized through the Enlightenment. We have in these universal declarations based on human rights, notions of the dignity of the individual, the specialness of members of the human species coming out of a faith tradition, which of course has been the major cultural tradition in the West. So what do we make of that? What do we make of the notion that we can actually affect changes in our human nature. Now, I'm not here arguing these things are going to be bad, arguing they're going to be good. I'm just here arguing that these are enormously consequent questions. And the notion actually of inserting changes, inheritable changes into the human stock rather than the mosquito stock is a Rubicon which we may or may not wish to cross, but if we do, we need to do so very cognizant of the historic character, which has brought together our top scientists 40 years ago and then a few months ago, because they themselves are aware of the historic nature of the discussion into which they're getting. Thank you very much.